In today's presentation, we will focus on the remarkable figure of St. Joseph, someone we often overlook in artistic representations. And he was in fact a latecomer in taking on important roles, both in art and in the life of faith. Yet recognizing him as a great inspiration for our time, Pope Francis has dedicated the year 2021 to this often unassuming saint. Our speaker, Dr. Elizabeth Lev, brings St. Joseph out of the shadows in the history of art with her lecture, A Good Man is Hard to Find, St. Joseph in Art. Dr. Lev is an art historian based in Rome with degrees from the University of Chicago and the University of Bologna. In addition to teaching at Duquesne University's Italian campus, she has been offering tours of the artistic riches of Rome and beyond for over 20 years. Dr. Lev is the author of four books, including How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, The Triumph of Beauty and Truth in Counter-Reformation Art, 2018. Dr. Lev, will you unmute and turn your video on? Well, I am very excited to be here with you. Um, I, uh, hold on, I get my video going, I guess. And, uh, and, and I, I feel so I'd like to start this whole, I'd like to start this whole evening with just a thanks to Pope Francis for really giving us an opportunity to think long and hard about St. Joseph, who has been in many ways in the peripheries of my art historical experience. And uh, this year has been an amazing opportunity to really think about the many, many facets of this fascinating saint. And, and I think it's fair to say that <laughs> for some of you, um, maybe perhaps your immediate experience of Joseph in art might look something like this, the little figurines from the creches, or this, which is the uh, little statues buried upside down to facilitate house sales, or worse yet, this, which was proposed in the nativity scene last, uh, the crush scene last December in, at the Vatican. And if this is what we're looking at for St. Francis, I can understand why some of you might have been reluctant saying, well, what on earth are we but it's about St. Joseph. I can see why some of you might have been reluctant to think, you know, why, why would I want to see a presentation on the art of, of St. Joseph? But there is a great deal more to this saint, even though scripturally he doesn't help us very much. He only has 15 mentions in the gospel and he has no lines whatsoever attributed to him. So he truly is the strong, silent saint. And as a matter of fact, if, it were, if we were dealing in today's Hollywood, he would not even be able to obtain an SAG card as a working actor. And yet Saint Joseph over the course of centuries has succeeded in being portrayed by some of the greatest artists in the world. And not only have they portrayed these images of Joseph, but they've also been responsible for transforming the image of Joseph so that he has many, many, many diverse representations. And so you see him constantly changing faces, constantly changing guises in order to come to the church and serve her where she needs it in any given moment. So during the course of uh, the history of art, the funny part is that in the early years when Christians first started producing art, so I'm talking about Paleo-Christian art, which begins at about 180 to 200 AD in catacombs and funerary sculpture, there is no Joseph to be seen. You can find shepherds, you can find magi, you can find an ox, an ass, Mary is present, there's a star, but the one person who is never visible is Saint Joseph. As a matter of fact, Saint Joseph will not make his appearance until art, until Christianity is not only legalized, it's not sufficient that Christianity is legalized in 313. We have to wait till beyond 385 when Christianity becomes the sole religion of the Roman Empire until the great age of church building in the fifth century. In the fifth century with complete imperial support churches, the most beautiful churches are built in Ravenna, St. Mary Major, Santa Sabina, and in St. Mary Major, 
between 432, the beginning date of the construction and 450, its completion, St. Joseph makes his first appearance. And what is fascinating about the first appearance of St. Joseph is that it's not a shy walk-on. In the apse mosaic of Santa Maria Maggiore, Joseph appears five times. That is more times than Mary appears in her own church than Jesus appears. He is the most figured person, except for I think angels. I think the angels might show up a little bit more. But the fact is, we see St. Joseph, we see him over here on the right. And we look at him with this kind of short tunic and this, this orange cloak over his shoulder. He looks young, by the way. He looks like a young, vigorous attendant. And interestingly, much of his outfit resembles that of a Praetorian guard. We see him, this, this imagery that would have been very familiar to the people who went to Santa Maria Maggiore on the Esquiline Hill in Rome, who were part of the imperial entourage, would have recognized this look as the protectors, the people who are the closest to the emperor and his family. It's a very interesting iconography for Joseph. Mary is seen as a princess. You see her here on the left. And Joseph is seen as her protector. A very kind of interesting debut. Followed by Joseph here, who sort of strangely uh, ages somewhat abruptly uh, during the uh, presentation at the temple. You see him again. You can recognize him by his orange cloak. Probably this is a later restoration where the artist decided to add his own idea of the gray-haired Joseph. We see him a little bit off to the right of that image where he falls asleep. You see him communicating. So we see Joseph doing many different things in these scenes. In one case, he's chatting with an angel. In another case, he's showing up for the presentation. Here he's communicating with the angel during the dream that will tell him to take his family and go to Egypt. We see him again in an apocryphal story where he encounters in Egypt uh, uh, a, a, a tribe, a, a clan of people who will convert to Christianity to a certain sense. They will recognize the presence of Christ the Savior. And look who's showing Jesus to, the, to this group of people. It's Joseph. Joseph stands actually right in front of Mary, and it is his hand that indicates the, the arrival of the Savior. And then interestingly, again, he shows up in, the, in the, uh, uh, the story of the Magi. You can see him very discreetly off to the left. He's kind of exiting the stage almost. You can see a little shimmer of his orange robe as he moves the Magi with his hand. He seems to guide the Magi forward into the presence of Christ. And I think that's a very important thing to, if we think about Joseph's iconography, as a reflection of Joseph's personality, that willingness to take the back step. Because after this glorious moment, this incredible debut where he sort of shows up everywhere, he becomes a very quiet, subdued figure for the next few centuries. In particular, when we find him in the um, and the icons of the sixth century, one of the most important things the church is trying to teach, trying to get across, not only to the faithful who have been arguing among themselves in the fifth century, arguing about Jesus's divine and human nature, but there are also, there are also a, a plan to evangelize parts of the ex-Roman empire or parts of the new parts of the world up north. So as the Christians are putting forth the story of Mary's, vir the virgin birth and Jesus's divine parenting, divine father, the idea is that Joseph needs to kind of take a little bit of a step back. And that is where we get the new kind of the customary iconography of Joseph. As a matter of fact, many, many people, if you close your eyes and you imagine Joseph, artistically, the first thing that will come to mind is an old man with white hair, sort of bent and bowed in a corner, contemplating in a corner. And this image of Joseph is really intended to create a, a, a reinforcement 
of this of the of the perpetual virginity of Mary. So they make him seem an old man, a kind of uh, a little bit of a decrepit man. They're very very distinctly separated in art. And so Joseph, as they try to bring him into the picture, the first priority always remains the understanding that Jesus is God, because this is a real theological issue that they are facing in the 16th in the sixth century, and they are also constantly focusing on the virgin birth or the, 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 the virginity, the perpetual virginity of Mary. And for that reason, Joseph remains in kind of a holding pattern from 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth century, looking more or less like this until suddenly with the turn of the millennium, Joseph's role will explode. His will be a, a myriad of different images of Joseph will follow one upon the other. As a matter of fact, very often they overlap. And so we have a Joseph who is a dreamer. We see Joseph who becomes comic relief in gospel stories. We see Joseph who becomes a kind of model for the Holy Father, literally the Pope himself. We see a Joseph who becomes Mr. Wright, Joseph who becomes the missionary man, and a Joseph who is the darling of the good death. And this is really only just a few in order to be able to keep this within uh, the time limit. Because if you stop and look at the myriad of images of Joseph, you will find that he has lent himself to so many different types of iconography. It's a really very exciting field to explore. So let's start with our Joseph the Dreamer. And Joseph the Dreamer comes to the fore, particularly in the 11th century after the sort of great age of church reform. And during the period of church reform, we have these figures who start talking about the constancy, the self-discipline, the ability to step back and think about the good of, of Mary and Jesus or the good of the church. And so we find Joseph beginning to appear as kind of a role model in how people should be uh, uh, living the faith. And in particular, Bernard of Clairvaux gives a series of homilies, in particular, a very beautiful one on Joseph, the husband of Mary, in which he compares St. Joseph to, to Joseph, the son of Jacob. And he compares them through many different ways. He talks about their, their lineage. He talks about how one is driven out by the envy of his brothers and the other is driven out by the envy of Herod. But the thing that really captures the imagination of artists is the idea of Joseph who has a very privileged and special type of communication with God. So to Joseph, son of Jacob, was given the understanding and the interpretation of dreams. But to the second Saint Joseph was the knowledge of and participation in heavenly mysteries. And so we find from about 1100, uh, 1200 on the right, you have a, um, on the right, you have the stained glass in Chartres. So this is part of the stained glass series of the infancy of Christ. And there in this beautiful sort of uh, Chartres bleu, blue, you see uh, the sleeping Joseph. Actually, I, I love this picture very much because you have Mary, who's obviously the dominant figure. <laughs> the church is dedicated to her. Um, and you have Joseph over in the corner. But what is really, I find very beautiful about this work, and these things are very attended to by the artists. Look how deep the blue, this is the famous Chartres Bleu of the Mary's halo and Mary's robe. And then Joseph has a lighter, slightly less expensive and complex blue. But when you look at Jesus's robe, do you see how they mix the two together? The swaddling clothes of Jesus mix together these two colors. It's a very kind of lovely way of bringing the two together in the parenting of, of the Christ child. And then on the left-hand side, you have a magnificent uh, mosaic from the Florentine baptistry, where again, it's a, it's a standalone image of Joseph dreaming. So there's this, 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 this wonderful age. Again, this is the age of Dante. On Thursday, we celebrated Dante Day, and this is the age of this great poetry, this, this age of mystical visions. And Joseph becomes really a leader in the imagination of that era of a regular guy being able to see and imagine extraordinary mysteries. And so this is it's a really wonderful way that Joseph leads us into um, his iconography. The uh, next image of Jesus is connected, the next image of Joseph is, Joseph is connected very closely to a relic because 
in the in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, we have nothing but relics. There are tons of relics. And then there's the Crusades and there are more relics. But you know who doesn't have a relic? Joseph. Not until we don't know about this relic for sure until the 13th century, when in uh, the Cathedral of Aachen, in the Shrine of Mary, this incredibly beautiful reliquary, a relic shows up. We hear about it for the first time in the first half of the 13th century, and it is Joseph's hosen. Hosen, that would be, I guess, trousers or pants. And the tradition is, this tradition that surrounds this relic, which pilgrims go to visit, the tradition that surrounds this relic is that these are uh, the old trousers of Joseph that he cut up in order to make swaddling clothes for Jesus. And this opens up a whole new world of iconography for Joseph. The whole idea of Joseph, this guy who's doing everything he can to help out, including you know, taking his old clothes and trying to make swaddling clothes for Jesus. He becomes a very vivid figure that the faithful can really participate in. And so in a certain sense, Joseph becomes in this period, in some artistic representations, he becomes comic relief of the gospels. And he becomes a figure that is tied to two different major elements. One is the rereading or the reconsolidating of the gospel of pseudo-Matthew, the idea of the, uh, the, the infancy story. So the Proto-Evangelium of James, uh, and then the, the pseudo-Matthew, that kind of become this very rich used source for, um, for iconography for Jesus's infancy. And there are all these details told in the story. This is a 14th century manuscript that illustrates things like Joseph uh, trying to get some water and some food for Mary and Jesus, Joseph leading the family. There's stories about Joseph running around trying to find midwives while Mary is giving birth. So Joseph becomes a kind of, with people read these stories, Joseph becomes a little bit of a comic character. And interestingly, this is happening at the exact same moment that a saint has decided that his whole raison d'etre is to become a fool for Christ. Saint Francis of Assisi, who stripped off all his clothes in the middle of Assisi, who was the jongleur of God, the man who wants to just, he doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care if people think he's crazy or he's funny. It's his way, his simple way of serving in his radical vow of poverty. And these two, Joseph and Francis, form a connection in art which is profoundly important because Joseph will become two things. One, he becomes the entry in one of the entry points into Jesus's human experience. If Joseph had to step back at the beginning to focus on Jesus's divinity in this new age, this great Franciscan era, we begin to focus on Jesus's human experience and Joseph becomes witness and entry point into that mystery. And the second thing that, uh, that happens is that it becomes, uh, and the mysteries become accessible. So Joseph, he's not, he's not portrayed as the smartest guy in the room. This wonderful painting over here, uh, it's part of an altarpiece for Philip the Bull. You see him, actually, this is the one painting I found where you actually see Joseph ripping up his old hosen. You see his little bare foot in the foreground in order to make clothes for his little nude baby over in the corner. And this kind of the little everyday objects. You see in the lower right-hand side, the everyday objects that remind you that Joseph is there to care for the everyday real needs that this infant has. And then you have God the Father who's looking up from above. So these, these hosen kind of become part of, of the imagination of Joseph, creating a collective imagination of Joseph. I would also point out that the bare foot you see in the center is reminiscent of the pilgrims. This is a great age of pilgrimage, pilgrimage where you would see 
see pilgrims arriving at St. Peter's in Rome, at Aachen in, in, in Santiago, they would be arriving barefoot. So again, that humility of pilgrimage. This one is very cute as well. I have to admit, I, I, I put a couple extra slides in here because I, I think these are very lovely images. Um, this one is, is, is very lovely as well. Joseph and Mary are wearing the same color clothes. So you definitely have a connection between the two, but Joseph kind of bent over blowing on the fire making some porridge while, you know, Mary is gazing at the Christ child. Again, it gives you this kind of way for regular people, people who, who like Joseph, kind of like thrown into this big old story. It gives a way to participate. I also really like this juxtaposition. If you see around the top here, these are the seraphim, the fiery angels burning with the love of God. And there's Joseph sort of blowing on the earthly fire in order to make it grow. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. And then here you have another one where Joseph is helping out preparing the bath. So he's kneeling there with the, um, with the midwife He's actually underdressed compared to the patron on the right who's wearing a royal blue, but he's helping out pouring the water as the woman tests the water. And then he conveniently wears the same color clothing as Mary so that we remember to connect the two of them. And then I threw in one more because I simply couldn't resist. Uh, this is a wonderful Hieronymus Bosch painting of the Adoration of the Magi. And you get very caught up in the central panel and you see this sort of exotic image of these three different ethnicities and these three different ages and the solemn moment of the wise men coming to baby Jesus. But if you look over in the far left-hand side, look on the left panel, look towards the back and there is St. Joseph. What is he doing during the Adoration of the Magi? He's drying Jesus's diapers in front of the fire. So again, sort of very kind of lovely iconography. It has a lot of symbolic meanings. So Joseph keeping this fire alive, lighting the way, but at the same time, it does have a sort of a humorous element which helps everybody uh, in the age, especially an age of great intellectual activity. Don't forget that this is the period the 12th century, the, 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 the 11th century, the, the 11th, and 12th, 11th and 12th century is when the universities are developed. I mean, we're developing this incredible, uh, the, the age of scholasticism. So it's a way for people who, who, who are simpler to feel like they have a, a means of participating in these mysteries. And Joseph really is held up as an example of someone who you know, participates first person. He's chosen by God to be witness to the mystery of Jesus's human experience. And in Italy, um, those paintings I showed you earlier were Northern paintings. In Italy, we just have a beautiful way of doing this. This is the uh, Giotto Nativity, which was chosen actually by uh, Pope Francis to be a Christmas card a few years back, much to sort of everyone's surprise, a lot of discussion about it because it is a very edgy and new nativity. It's quite a beautiful one. Giotto, who was in many ways the image maker for the Franciscans. He was very, very close to the Franciscan or order like Dante Alighieri. He too was a third order Franciscan. And so he was very attuned to the messages that they were trying to transmit in their art. And he was the most talented of all at interpreting them. So the it makes this nativity very surprising is that we have two Jesuses. So it's a double nativity, either Mary had twins or we're trying to say something else. And so we have Mary on the upper level. She's looking at sort of the swaddled Jesus and they're just gazing at each other. This is just an adoration. Mary's adoring Jesus. Jesus loves his mother. The angels are in adoration. Even the ox and the ass are up there in adoration. We have this intense moment of the mystery History of the incarnation, the, the, the God made man and the divine. The lower part, we have a very quiet Joseph who sits apart. He's not helping this time. He's not pouring water. He's not stoking fires. He's not making porridge. Joseph just sits and looks and he watches as the infant Christ is being fed, as he's going to be dried, as he's being taken care of. And so on one hand, we have the mystical incarnation and the God becoming man. And then we have Joseph witnessing God becoming man, human, a baby with the needs of a baby. And it's a beautiful way of kind of giving us these two entry points into the mystery of the incarnation. Now, uh, in the same period, I think I told you already that these would overlap a little bit. 
Uh, in the same period, there is a little tension with the papacy. And uh, part of the tension is caused by uh, a lot of warring factions uh, trying to pull the papacy in one direction or the other. There are noble families in Rome, there are the they're, they're noble families in France. There's a sort of the, the papacy is being torn in several different directions. And kind of the understanding after the papacy uh, moves to Avignon, this becomes a, a more, a, even a graver question. So a very, very surprising, I think one of the things that really surprised me when I dug in and started working on this question of St. Joseph, the thing that threw me was when St. Joseph became the doppelganger for St. Peter. And so there's a very conscious connection between the two saints that takes place again starting with the Franciscan order and continuing through to the 15th century and really beyond. So on the left, you see the dreaming St. Joseph. He's got his, his tools in front of him. And you'll notice he's basically the same color. So the colors that are pretty much established for St. Peter fairly early on in art are blue and yellow. And Joseph's colors transform into blue and yellow. So sort of creating this link, both men, because of the older man with the high forehead, the bushy beard, this is a very, very interesting moment in art where they, where they try to use Joseph as a kind of um, mirror or model for the successor of St. Peter. Now, this one of, the, one of the biggest catalysts for all of this is the papacy's transferal to Avignon, also known as the Babylonian captivity by, Pe by Petrarch, which took place from 1308 to 1378. And upon the return of the papacy, uh, uh, the Pope basically died in 1378 and promptly they elected not one, not two, but eventually three popes creating the Western Schism, which was extremely confusing for the faithful and, and, and a very dis dis disconcerting moment in the church. And so we find this language among um, uh, theologians where they're talking about a model for the papacy uh, in the person of St. Joseph. So already, already this, this follower, uh, uh, Peter Giolivi, who is a Franciscan, he's a follower of St. Bonaventure, who also writes a great deal about St. Joseph. But Peter Giannolivi is the one who makes the overt connection about Joseph, who represents God the Father or Christ because he is the spouse of the church. And then in turn, Joseph becomes the image of the Roman pontiffs who are the guardians of the church. And so we already have this kind of imagery starting to uh, germinate in the 13th century under the Franciscans. By the time the Western Schism is taking place, Jean Gerson, who is the Chancellor of the University of Paris, who is a prolific writer on the life of St. Joseph. He actually writes a almost 3,000 line poem in honor of Joseph. So Joseph gets an epic poem in the 15th century called the Josephina. And it's authored by Jean Gerson, who is very, he's, he's advocating for feast days for Joseph. He wants a feast day for the marriage of, for these, for the espousals of Mary and Joseph. He wants Joseph to have a proper devotion, an office, a real life in the church. And why is this? Because he is there in the Council of Constance as they are trying to figure out which Pope is actually Pope. And he says, the real problem is that we need the church to be the the, the 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 pope to be like joseph betrothed to the church shepherd to the church and this wonderful line that the, the this if you can have the uh, church strong silent you can have you can have the pope strong silent and obedient to the church then everything will be well so he has this very beautiful vision of how joseph should become the model for the successors of saint peter guarding over watching over, chastely protecting the, uh, the, the church. And so we have an evolution again in painting where suddenly Joseph and Peter 
are virtually impossible to tell apart. So you see on the left, here is Joseph. Uh, on the right, you see Joseph in the flight to Egypt. On the left, you see uh, Peter having the, the washing of the feet. And this is actually um, done by Giotto again, who is this great Franciscan, this great painter who works a great deal for Franciscans. And in his famous arena chapel, he actually has them arranged in such a way that where there's a scene with Joseph, there's a scene with Peter right below it. So that there's actually a much more obvious pairing if you're standing in the chapel. This is picked up by Perugino. Perugino, who will be painting in the Sistine Chapel, this very, very, very famous painting of the delivery of the keys in many ways in the 15th century cycle of the story of Jesus and the story of Moses, the most important painting in the room. Uh, this is the one where we see Jesus handing over the keys to Peter. And interestingly, we see a Peter who looks remarkably similar to the same Joseph that uh, Perugino had painted a few years earlier in the marriage of the Virgin. So again, the sort of pairing of the two is very significant. Interestingly, the Sistine Chapel, the uh, place where uh, the delivery of the keys was painted, was paid for by Pope Sixtus IV. I think everybody knows that Sixtus is the man who gives the name Sistine to the Sistine Chapel. And long before Michelangelo went in to paint the ceiling, the side walls were painted by Perugino and company. Sixtus IV, a Franciscan Pope, among the many things he did, he is also the man who made March 19th the feast of Saint, of Saint Joseph. So Saint Joseph's long journey for recognition ended under this pontificate when March 19th became the feast day for uh, Joseph. And then as soon as he had his feast day, he was called in to solve a new problem that the church was facing, which was uh, a problem with marriage. It seems almost difficult, it seems almost impossible to believe, but during the Renaissance, there were very uh, grave problems in the understanding of, of marriage. Part of the problem was uh, wealthy families in, um, in Europe would often arrange marriages as private contracts. So it would basically be done between two notaries and the sacramental part was something that was just sort of like a, something that happened that wasn't, that wasn't as important. And because of this uh, sort of funny organization of marriage, there were a lot of situations caused, there were, they caused a lot of situations where turns out that maybe someone was married to more than one person or people weren't really married. So there really was, there, there was a crisis in marriage. It had to do with a practice that had gone kind of amok. And the other thing uh, it was uh, connected to was the question of whether or not consummation or consent made up marriage. And these are debates that people are having in this period. So again, the church is thinking, all right, who can we get to stand up for marriage? And again, Joseph comes to the rescue. And so uh, we find the paintings that appear in the, in the late 16th century when they're really addressing this problem and, and in the late, in the late uh, 15th century and the early 16th century when they're really addressing this problem, um, we find the paintings that appear deal with marriage. And again, young Raphael, Raphael in this painting on the left is about 21 years old. Um, marriage is the furthest thing in his mind actually at the time. But look at his beautiful, if you, if you put them up, I don't have time for an art history class today, but if you put up Perugino's version next to Raphael's version, it's very illuminating. Um, he has this wonderful tilting of the head of the priest to really focus kind of the attention uh, towards this, 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 uh, this, this exchange of the rings, Mary reaching her hand out and Joseph putting the ring on, which gives this, this, again, this feeling of consent, this feeling of these two people who have agreed to this marriage. But behind him, the, uh, the perspective leads to the open door, which leads to infinity. So this idea, even the shape of the temple, the idea of this marriage is, is this marriage is forever. And again, you see down below Ghirlandaio's wonderful version. Again, we see the priest who is bringing the arms together. So this role of the sacrament, this role of the, of the priest in the sacrament, but also the role of the bride and groom in the consent to the marriage. And after that, the, the, from this comes some really beautiful art, uh, some really the sort of the meditation of Joseph's role, first as husband and then as father, 
leads to an explosion of truly glorious art. This painting by Georges de la Tour, who has Joseph working in his studio. Uh, you have the young baby Jesus holding the candle, watching his father at work. So really, for the first time, we see the father and son alone together, working together, sharing together. So it becomes this, this magnificent exchange of Joseph. And then, of course, I think almost everyone's, no, no presentation on Joseph is complete complete without Murillo's um, holy family with a little bird. You, many of you probably know that Murillo is the Immaculate Conception painter par excellence. He is the man who painted the Immaculate Conception uh, uh, a, many, many, many times until it became really the way we understand the Immaculate Conception image-wise. What you might not know is that Murillo painted just as many images of Saint Joseph. And so his images of Joseph and the Jesus child are as numerous as those of, of Mary. And this, this indicates that the devotion to Joseph has made its way to Spain where he has become kind of a superstar in, in, in the Spanish, in Spanish spirituality and this wonderful, again, these images where people are at work, this everyday family existence, uh, uh, which is then leavened and, and, and made even more beautiful because it is this holy family. And look at how Joseph is changing. In Murillo's version, we start to see this younger, much more vigorous Joseph. And this is thanks to a series of saints. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila will be one of the main promoters of St. Joseph's devotion in Spain. Of her, I think, 17 convents, she will dedicate 12 to Joseph after he uh, cured her of an ailment, but she is not the only one. Uh, her spiritual director, Father Gracian, he wrote another Josephina, so another uh, book on the life of St. Joseph, and also at the same time, we have up in Holland, uh, uh, Johannes Molanus, who writes uh, a kind of an indication on how artists should make images, absolutely condemning these older images of, of a doddering Joseph. We don't want to show that. We don't want to indicate that the reason why Joseph is a good and chaste spouse is because he's too old and too decrepit. This is the age when they want to hold up Joseph as a model of self-control. This man was handsome. He was young. He was strong. He was beautiful but he is a man of great self-discipline and tremendous respect of Mary and the mission of the church. And so this, this new kind of heroic Joseph comes into being thanks to this very, very particular focus on his devotion of these really three great figures. And that devotion travels. It travels as the Spanish begin to make their make their ways, the Spanish missionaries begin to make their way into the new world. And as the Jesuits start to make their way into Asia, Joseph becomes the patron of the mission to Asia. He becomes the patron of the missions to Asia and he becomes the patron of Mexico and actually several other places in the new world. And so we get a new type of art, which I really was dying to share with you because I just think it's so wonderful. Um, this is uh, this is a, on the seven, on the left hand side. There's the 17th century uh, Joseph from the Cusco school in Bolivia, where you see him and Jesus all dressed up in their kind of uh, very floral robes. He's always holding that lily, which is a symbol of his chastity, of his purity, of his. He's a young man again who chooses. He makes a decision. He makes a choice. He shows self control. And then the one on the right, which is a shocker. I think many of you probably recognize that iconography. It's usually Mary holding the robe out, carrying everybody under her robe. But here in Mexico, the painter is, um, is Miguel Cabrera, who is the greatest of the Mexican painters in this uh, Miguel Cabrera. There's a... Uh, uh, you see a total, total switch around where you see this is Joseph who is the patron looking over uh, the king who has made him the official patron of the Americas. Uh, he's looking over the Pope and he's looking over the rest of the assembled. 
And so we get to Joseph of the good death. And so we come to this, and there are many other Josephs, but I'm concluding with Joseph of the good death. And there is a story, there's a book that was written in the Middle Ages called The History of Joseph the Carpenter. And it's written from the point of view that this is, it's a really interesting read. It's told by Jesus. It's a first person narrative by Jesus. And so he talks about Joseph, that righteous old man, he was giving up his unquiet soul. When, what, I, what shall I do when I arrive at that place where I must stand before the most righteous judge? So it's a very, very long phrase. I just took a few sections from it where Joseph is terrified that he's not lived a perfect life. He's a sinful man. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And then his son comes. And he says, when Jesus comes and sits by him, the agony and the fear of death had already environed me. But as soon as I heard thy voice, my soul was at rest. And so Jesus, um, Jesus then says to Mary, the bottom line here, Jesus, there's a, there's a little pause. Jesus says to his mother, oh, my venerable mother, go into Joseph, that blessed old man, in order that thou mayest see what will happen as his soul ascends from his body. And in this story, this apocryphal kind of crazy story, Joseph becomes the patron of the good death because Joseph's fears, which are understandable, but Joseph's fears are allayed by no one less than Jesus himself. His fears, are he's accompanied in his last moments by the Virgin Mary. It's the most beautiful death imaginable, man who's afraid and assuaged. It's a lovely, lovely image, which in the Baroque form is such, a, such an inspiration for artists. So you have Joseph lying on his deathbed, Jesus blessing him, Mary sitting by his side. And it turns out there's a whole entourage of angels who are going to be doing the, the accompanying up to heaven. You see him leaving behind his tools down at the bottom and you see this like the like the incense ascends towards the heavens his purity you see that lily which is again symbol of his purity and then if you look at the angel on the left the angel's looking out of the picture at god the father who's just giving you a heads up you might want to pop the champagne joseph's coming it's just it's a magnificently baroque joyful image of a good death but there are also more dignified versions, which is what Friedrich Overbeck does in 1857, when he has this very peaceful, quiet, prayerful transito, as we say in Italian, from Joseph to his soul going up to heaven. I'll tell you, it was a little fun fact. There was a little moment there when uh, they were attempting to suggest the bodily assumption of Joseph, which kind of got nixed. And now we're in 2021. And we have Pope Francis, who has given us this incredible opportunity. So in his, um, in his uh, uh, declaration, he had this Patris Corde, uh, he talks about, he really talks about our contemporary age. And these are some of, the, some of the citations when he talks about how he wanted to talk about Joseph during this pandemic, when we experienced amid the crisis, how our lives are woven together by ordinary people like Joseph. He talked about children who seem like orphans. He talked about that Joseph is the patron of people who are forced to leave their native lands. And he talks about Joseph as the patron of the unemployed. So he really, he sees Joseph ready for a new transformation in our modern age. And so I thought I would end with just three images from three artists who are working today who have given us new interesting ways of thinking of Joseph. This is a beautiful portrait of Joseph, uh, actually using a model who's transformed into this sort of heroic figure, Joseph holding this rod of the lily, which according to the apocryphal story, flowered as an indication he was destined to be the groom of the Blessed Virgin with his tools by his side. This other really very interesting work by Janet McKenzie, where we see uh, the Holy Family as, as African-Americans, the sort of this family bringing us into this new consideration of what does this image of fatherhood mean, not just to the European circle, but looking at it as a sort of a model for a global type of imagery. And Doni McManus's just, I, I love the expression on this, on this Joseph hugging the Christ child is such a beautiful, intimate uh, image of fatherhood. And so I leave you with this. Uh, what will Joseph become for you during the course of 2021? Pope Francis has laid down the gauntlet for us to think about the saint and how he pertains to our world and our lives. And 
it's a great opportunity for us to think about how to respond to it in imagery as well. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for this almost whirlwind tour. There was so much to cover here, so much richness um, in, this, uh, in this history of St. Joseph. So let me begin with uh, putting together two questions that uh, came in uh, at the beginning about recognizing St. Joseph. Um, uh, one person right away from the, the uh, representations that were in uh, St. Mary Major, the very early ones, noted the lack of halos. Um, and uh, if you could talk a little bit about the use of halos and uh, as, a, as a recognizing um, uh, uh, sign of sainthood. And then just more generally, um, how do um, experts know how to identify Joseph, uh, particularly that's not just a servant or somebody who happens to be there if he's in this very sort of quiet um, uh, role? So um, the, uh, insofar as the Mary Major and the halo question is, uh, it, it, at the time of the work in Mary Major, halos are not very clear. Um, they're not 100% sure what they're using halos for. And halos, interestingly, seem to mean in St. Mary Major a speaking part. It's someone who actually says something. Because Herod in the St. Mary Major frescoes, in the St. Mary Major mosaics, he has a halo. And so we, I, so obviously we're not thinking like no one, no one go home and go, oh my gosh, they thought Halo, he was, they thought Herod was a saint in 450. No, it seems that Halo is kind of almost like a, this person will have a line in the story. So that's kind of how the, the Halo works then. And then later on, they begin to work out how the Halo uh, is, a, is a representation of a light and the sanctity. Connected to that, how do you spot Joseph in the picture. Um, it's usually a series of things. Um, the uh, shepherds are usually either dressed as shepherds or somewhere near sheep. So that'll, that'll help you figure them out. The magi are dressed as, as magi. They're always the best dressed people in the room and Mary Major, they're wearing the fabulous polka dot pajamas, which I love so much. And then uh, Joseph will, now the trick is you have to then spot him as older or younger, but conveniently in very early art after St. Mary Major, Joseph is pretty much always gonna be the older man um, because of the fact that they really make a point of representing him as elderly to preserve the image of uh, the virginity of, of Mary. I, just, I, I, I occasionally make little comments about when you're trying to talk um, about Mary and God. So you're talking about God uh, becoming man through the Virgin Mary. Um, the Romans have some really pretty um, edgy stories about uh, gods who, you know, like to come and visit girls and dress up usually as strange little animals and they end up being impregnated. So remember that if you're talking to that crowd, you really have to, you have to make things very clear for them. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why they're so emphatic about really separating Joseph and Mary in the early years. The Renaissance gets really, they, they really they get very interesting in how they interact to Joseph and Mary, but that's many, many years later. Uh, one question about um, these, uh, these long poems about Joseph. Um, what are the names and, and how do you, um, get, are they still interesting to read and how do you get them? Uh, they're very long. Uh, they're both called Josephina. So the two poems, the one um, by Gerson and uh, the one, by Gracian are called Josephina, and you can find them. Um, uh, they are they are they are long, um, and usually you you find the part that you're interested in. They're 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 very they're sort of that long kind of meter that's a little bit intense to read. But they they're they're they I found I found uh, Gerson's very interesting because he's really uh, creating the backstory of Joseph and in many ways rescuing it from the history of Joseph the carpenter and the pseudo Matthew, which are kind of this goofy guy who doesn't really understand what's going on and creating an epic character out of him. So it, they are really quite beautiful in that respect. Um, is there a reason behind the orange or the orange and blue color that uh, Joseph takes on along with Peter at a certain point? 
Um, interesting. That's an interesting question. Um, I suspect that the, uh, the, the, it's more of a goldish color. And uh, the gold color is a color that's associated with the papacy. So Joseph's going to be borrowing Peter's clothes. Peter begins to develop into this blue, which is generally a color of grace. Um, and this gold, which is a color of, it's the color of the papacy. It's the color of, 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 of divinity. It's a color of royalty, but really a color of purity as well. Gold is this, gold is what we use in the, in the backgrounds of the Byzantine mosaics. So I think this combination is very intentional to kind of take Peter, who's always portrayed as kind of an older guy, um, and, and confer on him this grace that he has as uh, this, the chosen, or the Prince of the Apostles. And then this gold, which is an indication also of the, when you see the two keys he's given, he's given two keys, silver and gold. And the gold key is, is the, the silver key, that which you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And the gold key, that which you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the idea that the Pope has this power to unlock uh, or, 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 or to unlock the gates of heaven. Uh, you talked about uh, Joseph being the patron of the missions um, and you, you went to Latin America. Um, you showed uh, a, an arrow to Asia, but you didn't talk about uh, representations of Joseph there. Anything interesting or, or special about, um, about that arm of things? Yes, there are there are some images, and I, I did that because I had a time limit. <laughs> but um, but no, because the the Latin American ones are very are really fascinating and quite beautiful. But the other reason is that the Latin America the the missions in Latin America were never subjected to the kind of persecution that the Asian images were Asian Asian missions were, and unfortunately, uh, even though we know we read about schools of art that were in Japan and in China. Unfortunately, during the really very serious persecutions and crackdowns, most of the art was destroyed. So I found a few pen and ink drawings, which were <sighs> Asiatic, but they didn't have that taking Joseph and making him their own the way that the Latin American ones do. And, and, and that doesn't mean they didn't, it just means that we don't have a body of evidence because the in, in, in Korea, Japan and China, uh, these places where we know there was some kind of budding art school, it was it, everything they they made was destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, and how about in the Orthodox tradition? Oh, well, the Orthodox, they never lose sight of Joseph. Yeah, this is one of those ones where we have to kind of go, oh, wow. As a matter of fact, those early ones I was showing you, those very early, the Sinai ones, they never, they never... Once, once Joseph shows up in St. Mary Major, he's not going anywhere. So he doesn't have to, he's, uh, he's a much more constant figure. And as a matter of fact, it is arguable um, that this kind of dreaming Joseph, this connection between Joseph from the Old Testament, Joseph from the New Testament is perhaps of Byzantine origin because we see that kind of contemplative dreamy figure in Eastern art. But no, this, the, it's just that the, the Eastern art won't, won't develop, however, into the kind of flights of fancy of the new St. Peter and you know, the dad. And so uh, uh, it's an interesting trade-off in my mind. Um, the orthodoxy and the constancy that we get in the art of the East because the teaching remains the same and the teaching is the same. But the flights of fancy and the individual contribution on the part of artists and the times and the winds of change produce such really exceptional things in, uh, in the West. So it's an interest, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, John Paul II talked about breathing with both lungs. It's, it, it's beautiful to have both. Uh, and what about St. Joseph as the patron saint of Canada? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel, I feel he's a patron saint of Austria, too. Okay. He's a patron saint of a lot of places. Right. I, 
could not get to every place he's a patron of. He's the patron of Austria. He's the patron of Mexico. He's the patron. Yes, he has many, many, many different patrons. I don't, I did not go searching for images of Joseph, patron of Austria, even though half the emperors were named after him. And, um, and I did not go searching for, yes, he is a patron of a great many places. And it's a really, it's an explosive thing that happens in the 17th and 18th century that as the church travels into these new parts of the world, Joseph is leading the charge. I mean, the same guy who picked up and went to Egypt one day because an angel told him to is the same guy who's going to be bringing the church all, of, all over the world, quite literally. So Joseph has these titles, um, patron of the universal church, patron of workers. Are there particular images that are um, sort of specially connected with those titles? So that was actually a hard part in this lecture because really the part, the Joseph that I think most of us know is the Joseph who becomes the patron of the universal church after the fall of the papal states in 1870. And then we have uh, Pius XII who declares him the patron saint of workers. But these are really important titles, but the imagery just seems to lag behind here. And so suddenly we find a kind of uh, a, a slowdown in the production of images of Joseph that can really, um, uh, uh, that can really address and hold up these new titles. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, it, it, this is a part of the interesting challenge, I think, that we can find in declaring a year of Joseph is how do we show Joseph as a patron of workers in, you know, in an age where unemployment, is, as Pope Francis says, is such an issue? And how do we show him as the patron of a universal church, especially in this period, when we're asking ourselves, what does it mean to be a universal church? What does it mean to include everybody? So it's, these are, these are I, I thought it was it's an interesting question of how we could produce a new iconography. I'm, I've just shown you that for you know, 1800 years, we've come up with new ideas for Joseph. It seems to me that we're ripe for some new ones. Mm -hmm. Um, in this long story with all of these trends and shifts throughout the centuries, um, how much um, would you say uh, sort of came from the artists and how much from the church as patron or a more sort of top down or, uh, you know, uh, uh, teaching content that then is, is given artistic form? I think that's... A very, very, very interesting question. Um, it is interesting because it, it it addresses a shift in how artists and patron and the church's patrons work together today, as opposed to how they work together um, in 1600, 1700, and 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 those years. Um, the uh, the the fact is that that today we have uh, this idea that artists are are kind of free. You just do whatever you're going to do, and you're the artist, and you know. Um, I. I, I, I stressed a lot the characters and the, um, the spiritual currents that were happening because Giotto, who I believe is one of the most brilliant artists that have ever, ever, ever lived, but Giotto's brilliance would have just been in a vacuum had it not been for a spirituality that knew how to channel it and challenge him and he, they worked together. So, Giotto becomes the, inter the visual interpreter of an idea of the human experience of Christ. Murillo becomes the, the visual interpreter of this idea of a chaste uh, uh, model of self-mastery, which is Joseph. Georges de Latour becomes, I, I, think, that, I think it's driven uh, by uh, the currents in spirituality and then artists who are very attuned to it and given a great deal of liberty to work, but within, within a certain parameters of, 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 of what the patron is looking for. So I think it's, there's a, there was much more of an informed patron um, and there was much uh, more of uh, a spirit of collaboration on the part of artists. Let's make uh, this perhaps the, the, um, the final question. So uh, people asked in particular, and this relates to the last question about Murillo and also about El Greco, who I think was not uh, one that you featured. Anything 
special about um, their treatments of, of Joseph as artists. So actually, it's interesting that you mentioned El Greco because he was, when I was making the selection, I think I was telling you earlier that I had this horrible problem. I had to keep taking things out because this thing was turning into like a two-day affair. Um, and I took out El Greco because simply because his work is a little bit, um, actually, I took out El Greco mostly because Maria's work is so famous. And I just, I couldn't really... I couldn't really see my way clear of not putting the Holy Family with the bird in the, in, in the, I just, I couldn't not do it. But El Greco is actually the leader of that theme. El Greco is working in 1560, 1570, and he is the one who first starts to show these very vigorous, youthful Jesuses. So he, he is totally on board with the counter-reformation program of this young, virile Joseph. And he makes these very sort of very tall, prominent figures in his particular, the way he uses the brushstroke gives a kind of a dynamism and a kinetic energy to Joseph that's very powerful. And then, um, uh, and, and, and so he, he really is one of the spearheads of this movement. Murillo has this lovely domesticity to them. And so I went, I, I sort of having to make decisions, that was the reason why I decided for Murillo instead of um, El Greco. Perhaps I could have taken out one of those images of Joseph bending over blowing on the fire, but I, I really get a kick out of them. So there it is. Uh, one final, actually small question. Uh, a sharp-eyed uh, questioner asked, is that a Guido Rainey behind you? Yes, very good. I was waiting for somebody to ask me that. So someone, I was waiting for someone to say, what's your favorite? And I was waiting for <laughs> What about Guido Reni? Yes, this is this is the Guido Reni nice work. It is the Guido Reni um, uh, uh, Joseph and the Baby Jesus. It's derived from an ancient Greek statue, which was uh, placed in the Vatican museums, of Silenus holding the baby Dionysus, and it's just transformed into this. I love the expression. Guido Reni did a lot of these. The expression of marble and wonder on the face of Joseph in, in Guido Reni. He's a very subdued painter, not a very passionate painter. And yet the fact is he, he projects this incredible intensity of this, a father and son, and yet the man and his savior, incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much. And both for their perspectives and for the, uh, um, this inspiring uh, Q and A.